0: Well, friends, let's go to the Lord in prayer now as we are about to look to his word. We have gathered here today to hear from God and to be ministered to by him. He is faithful to do that. Well, Let's go to him in prayer and ask him now for his help. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you as needy sinners. We do not come trusting in our own righteousness or our own goodness or our own ability to divide or preach God's word or our own ability to even hear it and understand it and love it. We pray, God, that you would come now because you are good and you're gracious and you're merciful and you have called us by your name. So come now by your spirit and minister to us. Use me as your instrument, as the preacher of your word. Pray that you would fill me with your spirit so that I might be helpful to these dear people who have gathered today. Pray that you would be with all of us and fill us with your spirit, that we might hear your word and love what it says. We pray that we would, as we just sung, that we would trust in your son more and more. We pray that as he has held out to us today, that we would trust him, that we would rest in him and hope in him, and that we would be stirred not only in love for him, but also in love for each other. And so we pray for you to come and do that work now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, as we've considered before, the church is about Jesus and the people who need him. We've thought about that before here at CBC, about the church being about Christ. He is what we gather for. Ultimately, we are in need of Jesus, and that's why we're here. We are in need of His righteousness that He provides for us, that is received by faith. We are here because we need atonement for our sins, and Christ has provided that. We are here because all of us are perishing, and we're in need of resurrection and life, and Christ alone can provide those things for us. So we don't come fundamentally to bring something to God that he needs, though he is glorified in this, we come fundamentally because we need God. So the church is about Jesus and the people who need him. It's also true in light of that reality that the distinguishing mark of the church, of the local church, in terms of how we live together, in terms of how we act, Toward one another, the distinguishing mark is love, love for one another. The Lord Jesus has told us that, that we would be known by the ways that we love each other. We need Jesus and in God's plan for our lives, we also need the church. We need one another desperately. We need the love of the saints. We need the fellowship of brothers and sisters in the faith. If we are going to endure and if we're going to be with God forever, we'll be considering these things today. The love of Christ for us, that is our most fundamental need. And then we'll be considering also today how the love of Jesus makes our love for one another possible. So we're going to be thinking about today from the letter of first John. So if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do open them up to first John chapter three. We'll be looking today specifically at verses 11 through 18 of 1 John chapter 3. If you are not used to looking at a Bible, no big deal. We will have the words printed up here on the screen for you. And we hope that that is helpful to you so that you can follow along with us as we consider God's word together. So before we go any further, I want to read God's word for us and then we'll consider the plan for the rest of our time together. So let's look now to God's word. 1 John chapter 3 beginning in verse 10, I'm going to start reading in verse 10, even though we'll be considering 11 and following. This is the word of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil, that is the evil one. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word today and every day. So I have a plan that consists of three parts. It's kind of a three-part message for us. I'm gonna go ahead and give you the, the plan now. Part one, we will survey the passage that I've just read. Verse by verse, we'll go through it. We'll try to wrestle with it. What does it mean? What is it saying? Second part, we'll consider what is the main point of this passage. And that's going to be found in verse 16. I'll go ahead and tell you. So we'll consider that together. And then lastly, I want to give us just a few pastoral thoughts on loving each other. So that's, that's the plan. Pretty simple. We'll start with part one, the text. So put your eyes now back on verse 10 of 1 John chapter 3. You see there at the very end, John had been talking about for a number of verses the issue of practicing righteousness. We considered that together last week. How because of the reality of the new birth, right? We've been born again by the spirit of God. God's spirit lives in us now. And therefore, our lives really are transformed. We're not perfect. We're not sinless, but we're changed. And so we really do live in a different way than we once did. And we really do strive after obedience. We strive after righteousness. We thought about these things last week. But then you see there at the end of verse 10, John is making a transition. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, okay, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, we've already thought a little bit from the second chapter of this letter about loving each other, especially in verses 9 through 11. But we're going to think about that again today in more detail. So now as we move into verse 11, John makes a reference to the words of Jesus from John chapter 13 and verse 34. The last night that Jesus was on earth where he spent time with his followers in the upper room and spoke to them about a number of things. Jesus said, then what John recites for us and alludes to in verse 11, put your eyes there. Why is it that one who does not love his brother is not of God? Because this is the message that we've heard from the beginning from the Lord Jesus himself, that we should love one another. Just as God's spirit in a person will not allow someone to go on sinning like we thought about last week, making a practice of deliberate, unrepentant, ongoing sinning. The spirit of God in a person will cause an individual to love, will produce love in us for our brothers and sisters really. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another again is the words of Christ, where he tells his disciples a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. So you also are to love one another. By this, the world will know that you're mine by the way that you love one another. So our love for one another, quite simply in the church, friends, is the way that we display to the world that we belong to Jesus. It's what distinguishes us from the world. It's a pretty remarkable thing. That's what Jesus tells us. That's what he told his followers. Remember John's emphasis in this letter. Remember what he's writing to do. He's writing into a church context that is being bombarded by false teaching and people who are leaving the church. People who are certainly not loving the people around them, right? So he's writing to assure his readers that, hey, you are good with God. Like you are the real thing. We are children of God. Now, you really are. You know the truth. He's encouraging them to keep trusting Christ. He's encouraging them to keep obeying God's commands. And he's also encouraging them, excuse me, to keep loving one another. That's the point of his letter. So as we move now into verse 12, John is going to unpack what he means. He tells us that we should love one another and he tells us that we should not be like Cain. Many in the room will be familiar with the story of Cain and Abel from Genesis chapter four, right after sin entered the world in Genesis three in our Bibles, in the record of that in history, the two sons or two of the sons of Adam and Eve, the first human beings named Cain and Abel find themselves in a situation where they are bringing offerings to God, one, an offering of His livestock that he had, another, the offering of the land that he worked. One of those brothers was righteous, we're told one of those brothers was wicked. Abel was righteous, Cain was wicked. And we learn in Genesis chapter 4 that Cain, out of hatred and envy, murdered his brother. So this is what John is referring to. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother Abel. And John tells us some of the motivation. Why did Cain murder Abel? Because his own deeds, Cain's deeds, were evil and his brother's were righteous. So Cain, in part, killed his brother because his brother was of God. That's the point. That the one the one brother who was of the evil one murders the brother that was of the woman who was of God's people. Cain hated Abel. Because Abel was God's. And so he killed him. And then you see that that's what John's getting at by looking at verse 13. Go ahead and put your eyes there. In light of the fact that Cain killed Abel because Abel was God's, don't be surprised, brothers, brothers and sisters, when the world hates you. Just like Cain hated Abel, the world will hate you. Don't be surprised by that. Again, this is a very pastoral word a word of consolation to these readers who would have been undergoing persecution, no doubt, who were being left by people that had at least once professed to be with them. It was a tough position that they were in and John is comforting them. Don't be surprised as though something strange is happening to you. Let's move on to verse 14 now though. In contrast to Cain who killed Abel, in contrast to the world who will hate you, we... We, the church, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Our love for one another, in other words, is evidence that we have passed from death to life. Our love for one another, imperfect as it may be, is evidence that we have been born again of the Spirit of God. The opposite we see is also true at the end of verse 14. You see John's words there. Whoever does not love abides or remains in death. Love for the brothers is an indication that God's spirit dwells in you, that you have life. No love, hatred for the brothers and the sisters is an indication that you abide, that a person remains in death. So when we come to things like this in scripture, this is just a a brief aside. We talk all the time about the only ground of our hope, the only ground of our assurance before God is Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And that is absolutely true. If we're talking in absolute terms, there is no other ground to stand on other than Jesus and what he's accomplished. And at the same time, there are things that we can examine in one another and find encouragement. So if we look around, and we're assessing our lives, and by our lives, I could mean ourselves individually, but largely what I mean is we're assessing each other in the context of a church, in the context of a community of people committed to each other, and we see like, hey, there's real love here. There's real concern here. There's real sacrifice and compassion and charity here. There's gentleness here in seeking restoration. When we see things like that in one another, That is reason for great encouragement. Great encouragement that the Lord is doing something. Great encouragement that God's spirit is at work, doing his work of transforming us and making us more like Christ. So this is what John, in one sense, is doing for his readers. 2,000 years ago, almost, the apostle is writing to this church saying, we know that we have been born again because we love each other. Take heart. Be encouraged by that reality. You are loving one another, saints. Praise God. This is evidence that God's spirit is in you. Now let's move on to verse 15. He continues to make the point. He's already said, whoever does not love, abides, remains in death. Now he just turns the temperature up. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Sounds very similar to the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll think about that. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So you remember the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, where he says to his listeners, you have heard it said you shall not murder. But I tell you that if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you have broken God's law. You have murdered him at the heart level. So that's what John is talking about here. Whoever has hatred in his heart, whoever's life is characterized by hatred towards the brethren, it's an indication that that person is not only a murderer, but that that person does not have life in him or her. Now, again, as we've been thinking about throughout this letter, when John will make statements like this, the issue is one of trajectory and not perfection. The issue is one of what characterizes a person's life. So what we should understand here is that if a person's life, who John is describing, the murderer that John is talking about, is a person whose life is characterized by hatred and malice and envy towards other people, toward even other people in the church. That is what characterizes and describes that person's life and the trajectory of that person's life. So for the tender consciences in the room, you should not understand that you are the murderer being talked about because you've gotten angry with somebody in the last week. The question is one of what characterizes your life and mine. If a person is living a life where there is just no evidence of love for the brothers and the sisters, there's no concern, there's envy, there's malice, there's apathy even, don't care. That would be a cause for great concern that maybe that individual in question does not have life in him. Let's move on to verse 16. And we're gonna spend a lot more time on verse 16, so we're just gonna consider it briefly right now. By this, we know love. He's talking about loving each other. This is how we know what love is. That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for one another. This verse is the anchor and the ground of this section of John's letter. This is the one that gives meaning to what love is. It is the truth in terms of Jesus and what he has done that makes our love for one another even possible. We're going to consider that more in the second part of the sermon. For now, let's move on to verse 17. John now gives us in verses 17 and 18 just some ways to assess love for each other. He's going to argue from the greater to the lesser. Right? He said just now said we should lay down our lives for each other. That's what we ought to be willing to do. We have to love one another in such a sacrificial way that we would as Christ did, lay ourselves down for one another. So then he will illustrate that in verse 17. He's going to make an argument from that greater thing, laying your life down to something lesser, sharing your stuff. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So that's a a question to ask. Are we willing, like to, to illustrate and to show, to expose what's in our hearts, are we willing to share our stuff with the brothers and the sisters, right? John's arguments are quite clear. If you're not even willing to share your stuff, like your money, your possessions, whatever, then how in the world would you be willing to lay your life down? right? Greater to the lesser. If you're not willing to share your things, how much less willing will you be to lay your life down for your brothers and your sisters? Remember, too, the context of this letter, right? You you guys know, false teaching, apostasy, but some of the whack thinking that was going on in this era of the church's history had to do with those two planes that we've talked about, spiritual plane, physical plane. The only thing in the world that matters is this kind of spiritual stuff. So sin in the body doesn't matter. Just generally physical things don't matter. It's quite possible that in this context, that's in view too, that, hey, things in the body don't matter. It doesn't really matter that I would meet my brother or sister's physical needs. What really matters is the spiritual part. So I'm not really obligated to meet physical needs in the way that we're concerned with the spiritual issues. I would say that there are ways that we can think like that in the church even today. We're concerned with the spiritual to the neglect of temporal, physical, real needs. And that ought not be so. As Christ said, even to the Pharisees about different issues of the law, you should have seen to these without neglecting the other. We should see to spiritual concerns without neglecting real, holistic, practical love and care. It's not an either or propositions, both and. It seems that John is exposing that that error in just what he's writing in the context he's writing into. And then in verse 18, he's going to ask it in a different way. Again, he uses this in in term of endearment, little children, dear ones. Let us not. He's encouraging them. Let us not love in just word or talk, in what we say, though we should do that, right? Let us also love in what we do, in our deeds. Let us love in truth. Let it be real. Let it be real love that exists amongst us. Do we intentionally and sacrificially love one another, or do we just talk a good game? That's in view in verse 18. So now that we've looked at the verses together, friends, I want to Now take us into the second portion of the sermon, part number two. So we've considered the text, and now I want to back up a little bit and consider the main point of this passage. I'm going to put it this way, and I'll say this twice, just for the copious note takers in the room. In Christ and because of Christ, we are to love one another. In Christ and because of Christ, We are to love one another. So this is massively important as we look at verse 16. The love of Jesus for us is the source. It is the fountainhead of our love for each other. In looking at the love of Christ for us, we are then enabled to love one another really. His love for us makes our love for each other possible. This is true in at least two ways. So first way that that's true. It is through Christ's love, his life, his death, his resurrection in our place, right? His work, his love. It is through his love that the new birth was secured for us. And the new birth results in genuine love for one another. Let's say that one again. The first reason why Christ's love is the source of ours is because his love secured the new birth for us. And the new birth is what produces love for one another in us. Second reason that this is true. As John is doing, like pointing people back, what did Christ do for you? Look to Christ and what he did. As we behold Jesus and as we consider his love for us, we are changed. We've thought about this before. As we consider Christ and behold his love for us, we are transformed for real. We grow by beholding the love of Jesus for us, we grow in love for other people. That's how God does this, by his spirit. So this is why to see Jesus and to have Christ held out to us every week from the book, is the primary strategy for our growth in love. How are we going to grow in love for each other here at CBC? Answer, behold Jesus Christ. Look to the love of Christ. Look to Him, what He did for you. You want to talk about being moved to love your brother or your sister. It is the love of Christ that will move you to that. Jesus said what in the Great Commission, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. What did he also say about commandments in particular, the one we've already thought about? A new commandment I give to you. Love each other. So we, we want to teach people everything that Christ has commanded, to teach people to obey everything Christ has commanded. It's never less than this. Love each other, right? So then the question about that, if we're to love each other, what drives that? Who drives that love for each other? Like, are you going to, in your own willpower, like white knuckle and just muster up love? For each other, real love, doubtful. I would say flat out impossible. Will you be able to really do that? Who drives that? The Holy Spirit of God drives that. But by what means does the Spirit of God drive love for each other? How does he do it? He, like we thought about even a couple of weeks ago, he points us to Christ. Consider Jesus. Look to Christ, look to his love for you. And as the spirit of God takes hold of that, we behold Christ, the spirit of God takes hold of that and he works in us and produces love for the brothers and love for the sisters. That's how it goes. So question, another question. And this is all underneath that big heading number two, right? That it is Christ, in Christ and because of Christ, we're to love each other. So a serious question for you. How do you, how do we know that Jesus loves us? I'm tempted to say, as we teach our children to sing, right? Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so. That's a good answer. But more specifically within that, how do you know that Jesus loves you? Look to the cross is the answer. Look to the cross and what he was willing to do Look to what he did for you, for me. In the Gospels, we're told that Christ, at one particular point in his ministry, Luke draws this out very specifically, that he turned, as it were, and set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, right? It had come time for him to go to the holy city to die. He was determined to do it. He was undeterred in that mission. He was determined to lay his life down for the sheep. He did that certainly in obedience to his father. And he did it in love for you and me. He was committed to accomplishing redemption. And he willingly endured the shame and the suffering that that required. So brother, sister, sit here this morning trusting Christ. He loves you. He loves you. He knows you by name. He says that. I know my sheep. They know me. I know them by name. I call them out and they follow me. It's an intimate thing. We say in the, in the evangelical church, people say stupid things about the love of God sometimes that are sappy and sentimental. This is not that. This is real, right? This, he knows you by name. He leads you as your good shepherd. He leads you to living water so that you would never thirst again. He leads you to green pastures so that you might rest in his goodness for the rest of your days. He leads you in paths of righteousness for his namesake. You realize Psalm 23 is about Jesus, the good shepherd. We sung Psalm 23 earlier. Jesus, take heart in this. Like if you're struggling and maybe even discouraged by the circumstances of your life or you're discouraged by a lack of growth, you're discouraged by your sin. Jesus will accomplish his good purposes in you. He will. It will happen. It is certain. And what's awesome about Christ is that in doing that, in accomplishing all of his good purposes, he will never waste your pain. He will spend your sorrows well. He puts your tears in a bottle. He's aware of them. Psalm 56.8. He watches over you and he protects you. Even in the, the deepest valley and the darkest night, he is your good shepherd. But what's more, how do you know that Jesus loves you? Like, how does he love you? He came to give you life, abundant, eternal life. He gave his life in order to give you that. He bought you. So also, sometimes silly things are said. It is right that the Lord Jesus Christ took names to the cross. Jen, Stephen, Sean. Corey, right? He took your name, your shame, your guilt, your sin, the wrath of God you deserved. He took it. He bought you. It's done. It's over. That's why you don't owe a penalty anymore. There's nothing left for you to do. The debt is settled. The penalty of the law is paid. The wrath of God is satisfied. That's how Christ loves you. Remember his words. No one takes my life from me. He was not coerced at all. The only human being ever to live who said this, and it was true. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And he did on the third day. He took it up again. And one day he will take your life up too. He loves you. He has promised that He will not lose any that the Father has given to Him. And He never fails, ever. Your confidence today that you will be with God forever lies not in you. It lies in Christ and the fact that He never, ever fails. He has you in His hands. He says that. And no one can snatch you out. He intercedes for you. That means he pleads your case now. He lives forever to make intercession for his own. That's why we'll be saved to the uttermost. He doesn't plead your merit, but his. He pleads his blood for you even now. His life for yours. He pleads that. He will raise all of us on the last day to be with him and behold his glory forever. That will be for our everlasting joy, but it will be for His too. He loves you. He wants you to be with Him where He is. It's not because He needs you, it's because He loves you. His joy will be complete in our redemption. That is marvelous. It's scandalous, really. As we consider Continue, I should say, to consider the love of Christ. Remember, brother and sister, that the love of Jesus has saved you. His love for you has resulted in your sin being forgiven. And because of that, the love of Christ is a refuge for you. It is a safe harbor for you. We thought about this a lot, even when McKenzie preached a few weeks ago from Psalm 11, that very first verse. The Lord is my refuge. Uh, how? Because I'm sinful and he's holy. Like, I am evil and he's righteous. He punishes wicked people. How? Because of Christ. It's because of Jesus that every day we know two things. One we will fail to meet God's righteous standard. And two, Christ has paid for every failing and we are His. We know both of those every day. His love is a refuge for sinners. We will fall. That's certain. And when we fall, Christ's love is there. The love of Jesus, brother or sister, is gracious love. You you could never earn this love. You, you could have never earned it, ever. And certainly, given the state of affairs in all of our lives, let's be real, none of us deserve it. Like his father, Jesus loves us because he loves us. His love for us is grounded in himself, not in us. It's like Deuteronomy 7, where Moses tells the congregation of Israel, it is not because that you were great or mighty that the Lord loves you. It is because he loves you, that he loves you. You were the smallest of the peoples. It's because the Lord loves you. That's the reason. It's because he is God and he loves you. The love of Jesus is also humble. We read from Philippians chapter two today, how Christ left the glory of heaven I mean, I don't know about you, like every now and then, you know, in life, these circumstances will transpire where you used to have something that was really good and nice. And then it goes away. Tracking with me, and then you're aware of like, man, that was awesome. And this is not so good. Well, that and then some is what Christ willingly did. He left his heavenly throne above. He left the glories of heaven and took on human flesh. He took on the form of a servant. And as if that wasn't enough, he was obedient, we're told, to the point of death, even death on a cross, a death beneath human dignity. That's the point of the cross. Everybody in that context in the first century would have been very acquainted with the cross. Like this is dehumanizing. This is terrible. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, and he told his disciples that he came to serve, not to be served. His love is humble love, right? The whole, the interchange in John 13, where he washes the disciples' feet, what's that ultimately about? What is that ultimately about? It is ultimately about the fact that Jesus is demonstrating the way that he would serve and save his people through a death that was beneath the dignity of even slaves. That's the point. There are lots of other things we can talk about, but that's what he was doing. Slaves didn't even wash their master's feet in that culture. It was beneath them. So he did something that was beneath the level of a slave to demonstrate this is what I am going through to save you. I'm going to die a death that even slaves don't die so that you might be ransomed to God forever. His love is humble love. The love of Jesus also, friends, is compassionate. How many strugglers we got in the room today? Every hand ought to go up. He knows our frame. He knows your frame. He knows the bends in your frame. He came, he said, for sinners. I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. I came for those who are in need of a physician, not the ones who are well. He came for the weary, for the burden, for the heavy laden. He came to give us rest. So if you sit here this morning, and you're in Christ, here, these these words that are either direct citations from Scripture or taking Christ's words and paraphrasing them, these are the words of Christ to you as a saint this morning. Come to me, weary ones, and I will give you rest. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, you who are thirsty, and I will give you living water and you will never thirst again. Come to me, you who are hungry, and I will give you bread, and you will never hunger again. Come to me, guilty ones, and receive the forgiveness of sins. Come to me, sinful ones, and I will give you my righteousness. Now, in light of all of that, when we are then told, love your brother, love your sister. The response is like, amen, yes. How could we not in light of that love that Christ has shown us? That's how this works, just as we've considered before. Having like when a Christian beholds the love of Christ for him or her. The last thing that a believer wants to do is to go out and send the lights out of the thing. We've said that. It could also be said that way here, that the last thing a believer wants to do, having beheld Christ and his love for us, is to then go and hate our brothers and sisters. No. We behold the love of Christ and we are compelled and moved and stirred up to love each other. Jesus and his love makes our love possible. Jesus and his love stirs us up so that we might love one another. Part three of our sermon today, of our time together today, just some pastoral thoughts from me on loving one another. In particular, thoughts on loving one another sacrificially and intentionally. So I'm reasoning from biblical principle here. I mean, I'm not just kind of, shooting from the hip, but I also want to be really clear that I'm not saying things to you in every semblance here that is like a thus saith the Lord reality. We're thinking together from the Bible about how we can do this well, love each other. So the first thing that I'll bring up is what John references in verse 17. We can love one another sacrificially and intentionally with our resources, with our stuff. We can love each other financially and practically. We can meet real tangible needs. So we, as many in the room will know, at various points in our church's life, we have taken up specific benevolence offerings for people that are amongst our number, people in need, right? Various circumstantial hardships, the church wants to come alongside and help with those. That's an illustration of a corporate effort in doing this. Sharing of our money, our resources to help brothers and sisters who are in need here. This church, I, I can say this, I, I'm a member of this church, and I'm one of the pastors, but as I've always watched the congregation respond to needs that are made known, it is encouraging. It is encouraging to see how the saints come together and meet practical needs for those who have hardships. So another way, just in an ongoing sense, that we can do this for each other is to, in tactful ways, right, be aware of the financial situations of other members, of other people in the church. Tactfully do that, right? Discernment needs to be used. And then, as you're aware of that stuff, love people. Do kind things for people. Be thoughtful. When you meet them for lunch, get their lunch. When you go for coffee, get their coffee. Invite them to do things and on the front end, tell them, hey, don't worry about money like we got right. Just want you to come. It's loving. It's considerate, practical. Maybe you're aware of needs that people have and you either maybe purchase them something that they really need and don't have. Or you give them something of yours that they need and don't have because you're aware. That's exactly what John is encouraging us to in verse 17. And there are people, I just want to reiterate, there are people in this congregation that do this kind of stuff on the regular. It's very encouraging to see it as a pastor. May we do it all the more, right? Love each other in these very practical, tangible ways. If the Lord has blessed us, let's share it with one another. There are many other ways, though, that we can sacrificially and intentionally love each other. All right, I'm just going to, this is in no particular order. This is just kind of like, here we go. I'm just going to, I've got bullet points. I'm just going to talk. I, God bless you, right? Here we go. So number one, I mean, another way we can love each other is just listening, listening to each other. So when people go through hard things, which happens regularly in a fallen world, one of the greatest things that we can do is listen. Listen. Don't correct immediately. There are good and bad times to correct bad theology. Right. Be considerate and thoughtful in the way that we just listen. Hear people. Seek to understand. All right, my brother is struggling. My sister is hurting. I want to know why. Talk to me. Listening. That that may seem just like intuitive, but you would be astonished how meaningful that is. I mean, you probably wouldn't be because it's been meaningful to you, like it has me. Another way very similar to listening is just being there, your presence with people, and especially in times that are that are difficult. It's amazing how much somebody's presence just thoughtful presence not saying much not necessarily doing a ton just there it's meaningful another way that we can sacrificially and intentionally love one another is to bear with one another in patience and compassion this one's tough because we all we all have you know particular strengths weaknesses struggles whatever we all have particular things that we are passionate about that we care a lot about we see things differently. So I'm not talking about primary issues of doctrine here. I'm talking about stuff underneath that. We see things differently. And sometimes it's really difficult to be patient with each other. It can be really difficult to be patient with people when we see them falling into the same old pattern again and again and again. And it's just like, you know, I, I, w- I want to be frustrated, but I know that patience is what the Lord calls us to. Patience and compassion are sacrificial and they are intentional in the way that they come across to people. Another way that we sacrificially sacrificially, intentionally love people is by being an encourager. Continue to encourage people in their walk with Christ. Alongside that, you could just say supporting people. So when people, again, are experiencing hardship, you encourage them in Christ Jesus. You support them in the Lord. Look to Christ. Trust him. Inconveniencing ourselves at points, right? This is sacrificial. Now, there is reason here. There's discernment and discretion to be used here. We all, you know, many in the room have families and we ought not neglect them. And at the same time, there will be moments and points when we are all going to need to set aside our schedule and set aside our agenda and our plans to love a brother or sister. It's going to happen. It happens regularly. Setting aside, another way we love people is by setting aside our preferences. Mm. Yeah. Setting aside our liberties. Like we thought about Christian liberty together last month. You know, high level, but then also just kind of issues of conscience. One way that we love people is by being willing to lay down liberties that we have for their good. Another way that we can really intentionally love each other is to think about people that maybe are not like you. And there's a lot here, right? I don't I don't just mean you know, socioeconomic status, I don't just mean you know, your ethnic heritage, I don't just mean those things. Things like age even, stage of life, those things matter in terms of how we live with one another. We have single people in the church. So this church is comprised mostly of families. That's pretty clear. There are single people and then there are some of our middle-aged and older couples who have grown children or they just never had kids or whatever and they don't have children with them, we need to be mindful about how to love all of those kinds of people. Loving single people in a church full of families requires intentionality. I don't know that we've done a great job of it. I hope we can do better. Being mindful of singles and inviting them over for meals and spending time and all of those sorts of things. Loving older members of the church right, who don't have a bunch of kids running around, but we want to love them, bring them into our family dynamic, spend time over coffee, things like that. Think about how to fold one another into your lives. For going to the store, give somebody a call and see if they want to do their shopping with you. Going to, you know, going to pick up some hardware stuff at Lowe's, it's like, hey, let's have a bro sesh, you know, like, let's do stuff like that. We also do want to love the families and the parents and the children. So we got people across the hall and many of you do this on a weekly basis. There are several people watching small children for services like that is not a small thing that matters. That is a practical, tangible demonstration of sacrificial love for each other. Like I imagine the parents and especially the moms of small kids in the room would just like heartily amen that. I know that I mean, for ourselves personally, I know it's a great and tremendous service to the Purdue's that two of our kids are over there. And I'm sure many people feel the same way. We want to think well about loving each other. Now, I want to give us a kind of closing thought about this whole loving each other stuff. So this is how we'll land the plane. This is related, but slightly different. So I'm just going to kind of lay it out for you. We thought last week in detail about practicing righteousness. This might be obvious, but I'm just going to say it. You cannot practice righteousness without love. You cannot practice righteousness without love. So it's a sadness that sometimes in the church, I don't just necessarily mean here, I just mean in the church in general. It seems that we're in danger of our pursuit of righteousness resulting in us being rather unloving people. What I mean is this. Occasionally, when people are very concerned with righteousness and holiness, sometimes we end up becoming difficult people to be around. We end up becoming people that kind of bludgeon other people to death. We oftentimes, if we're very much focused on our own holiness, a lot of times we lack compassion in the ways that we interact with people. When it comes to struggling people and people who are in pain, we're a little bit tone deaf. It's like, well, you just need to trust God. Kind of thing. So beware of, it's not that I think this is going on at CBC at all, but just beware of what I like to call Green Beret Christianity. You know, where it's just like this sort of tough guy mentality that you've just got to be this hard-nosed, you know, just kind of suck suck it up and bear up underneath stuff. And like, we're just going to plow through and the harder, the better, man. Beware of that kind of thing. That kind of a posture One that wants to pursue righteousness, but then ends up running over people is an indication of a theological problem. It ought not be so. Again, this is not an either or proposition, right? It's not that we either are concerned with love or righteousness. It's that righteousness includes love. They're not contradictory. They go together. Practicing righteousness and loving one another are inextricably linked in Christ Jesus. So if our definition, and again, I'm not speaking to anybody. I don't have anybody in view. I just want to be very clear. You can be comfortable right now. If our definition of righteousness does not have love, the kind of love that we've been considering today at the forefront, then our definition of righteousness is off. To say, oh, this is a righteous person but that person lacks compassion and that person runs over people and is kind of condescending, I think we have misunderstood it, what to be righteous would be. And so in light of all of this, we just rejoice in these realities that the way to grow in love and righteousness both is to take our eyes off of ourselves, to put them on Christ primarily, and then have an eye to our brothers and sisters. That's how we grow. It's not by obsession about me and what's going on in here. It's I'm looking to Jesus and I am mindful of my brothers and my sisters. We look outside of ourselves to Christ. Always we point one another to him. Always we rely upon the Holy Spirit. Always we pursue righteousness as we trust. We pursue righteousness as we rest in Christ. We pursue obedience in reliance upon God's spirit. And we love one another. We love one another in Christ and we love one another because he has loved us. May it be so. Here, let's pray. Our Father, we come to you just as needy now as when this sermon started. We ask that you by your spirit would take the truth of your word, that you would take the truth about your son. Drive it deep into our hearts and our minds and affect change in us, we pray. We pray that you would be strengthening us in our confidence in Jesus. And we do pray that as we consider the love of Christ for us, that that we would love one another all the more. We pray that we would be people who are characterized by righteousness and obedience and who are characterized by love. We pray that we would be people who rejoice in Jesus and what he has done. Continue to do this work in us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.